The following Knowledge at Warden podcast is brought to you by Vanguard, offering investments designed to help individuals and institutions reach their financial goals. Visit Vanguard.com. Additional support for this podcast comes from Warden Executive Education. For more information on Warden's executive course, Executive Development Programme, please visit executiveeducation.warden.upenn.edu. Dana Joya claims to be the only person in history who went to business school to be a poet. Having earned a degree from Stanford's Graduate School of Business, he worked 15 years in corporate life, eventually becoming vice president of General Foods. In 1991, Joya wrote an influential collection of essays titled Can Poetry Matter?, in which he explored, among other themes, the nexus between business and poetry. Since 2002, he has been chairman of the National Endowment of the Arts, where he has overseen programs aimed at making Shakespeare and poetry recitation more popular in the U.S. Joya, who was a speaker at the Wharton Leadership Conference in Philadelphia on June 7th, talked about these ideas with management professor Michael Usim and Knowledge at Wharton. Well, you had worked for 15 years as a business executive, including a stint as VP at General Foods. And what have you carried uh, from, uh, well, from your poetry into your poetry, rather, what have you carried into your poetry from that particular business experience? Well, first of all, let me make something sort of clear, because people often get my career a little confused. I'm the only person in human history who went to business school to be a poet. And uh, I, that is unusual. Okay, and, I, and because I wanted to be a poet, and I wanted to have a job, a career, and uh, I didn't want to be in academia, and I found business interesting, and I found the sort of the problems and opportunities that you, you work with in business very interesting. So, you know, I went to Stanford Business School uh, and then spent 15 years in corporate life. And so uh, I sort of came into business as a poet. Uh, and I have to say that, um, you know, having attended uh, Stanford and Harvard, I got my education in business. And it taught me a lot of things that have helped me as a poet. I mean, I think the most fundamental thing is that in business, I was working with very smart people who, you know, were uh, more average, I think, in terms of their interests. You know, rather, you know, high work ethic, very intelligent people. And I was able for 15 years to live and work with people who were not literary people. And it gave me a better sense, I think, of the language and of the kind of of issues, ideas, subjects that the average person is more interested in. Hmm. And, it, and it took me out of the hot house of the uh, English department. Okay, good. Let me reverse the question. From your own experience, can business managers themselves benefit the other way around from poetry? Oh, absolutely. But uh, I, I, I think that my own theory on it um, may uh, surprise people. I think if you come into the business with an arts background, you have a tremendously difficult time initially, because it's a very different world. It looks at problems differently. And by and large, they don't necessarily respect your background. For that reason, I did not let anyone I worked with know I was a poet. You know, because uh, let me ask you a question. If you had a poet working for you, wouldn't you check his or her edition? You know, so, so, you know, but, you know, I privately, I went through a very difficult time. That being said, as you rise in business 
as you get out of the lower level staff jobs, the quantitative analysis, and you get into the higher level of problems, I felt that I had an enormous advantage over my colleagues because I had a background in the imagination, in language, and in literature. Uh, Because once you get into middle and upper management, the decisions that you make are largely qualitative uh, and creative. And most people who do really well in the early quantitative stages are grossly unprepared for the real challenges of upper management. It, at least in uh, in marketing, which is the industry I was working, marketing and product management. Let me ask along this same line. You've noted that Archibald McLeish was an editor and a writer at Fortune magazine. And would you comment on the extent to which business writers would also benefit with a familiarity or even a direct engagement in the world of poetry? Well, um, well first of all, there's a long tradition of American literary writers who have worked in business, Wallace Stevens, T.S. Eliot, James Dickey, Richard Eberhardt, as, you know, as well as uh, Archibald McLeish. Yep. And so I think that, there's, that there is a natural connectivity, at least in American culture, between the creative and the commercial. Now, the best business writers, I think, are people who are, first and foremost, writers but have had some actually hands-on experience in the business world because they see it from the inside. And, you know, what you don't really want is the kind of business writing in which the, uh, the writer looks with distanced emotion or even scorn on these, you know, these poor unfortunates who have to, you know, work in the commercial world, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, and understands the excitement, the creativity, the challenges, uh, the, the, in a funny way, sheer excitement of working in certain aspects of business, especially certain, during certain times in certain industries. So I think that, you know, like everything else, to be a good writer, you need to be a good writer in an abstract sense and have a passionate, real connection with the subject matter that you're writing about. If business and business writers can benefit from having uh, at least some contact with the world of poetry, You've also written somewhat colorfully about uh, keeping your early writing secret. And uh, I love the story about how you used to grab the five copies of The New Yorker that would arrive in the company store before any of your colleagues could buy one. Now, that was quite a while ago, uh, better than 15 years back. As you have had contact with the culture of business, corporate culture and the like in recent years, is that world still that unfriendly towards those who are involved in the creative arts? Well, you know, business is deeply conflicted on this issue. I don't know any senior executive in the United States that doesn't lament the need for greater creativity, you know, conceptual innovation, imagination in their corporation, but they don't know how to foster it. You know, because, as I said before, the very ways that they recruit people and they train people are almost designed, you know, just to, you know, to scare people out. It's really interesting. I mean, the fellow that created uh, the Monk TV show used to be like a marketing assistant at, at, you know, General Foods. I think they, I don't know if they fired him or he just quit because he was frustrated. But, you know, a lot of these people that were involved at General Foods have gone on to these immense, you know, you know uh, creative careers but they didn't have a channel for that. But it was exactly what the what the the institution needed at its higher levels, mm-hmm. and so uh, so I think that 
what I see is I see a desire for it, but I don't see much consensus on how you create it, except by hiring expensive, inspirational speakers to come on a you know you know for a, a meeting and give yep. you a talk which makes you feel good about yourself for eight hours. Great, thanks. I'm going to turn now to your contemporary or your current position. Uh, you wrote in a, what has become a very, very, very well-known essay in 1991, Can Poetry Matter? That to quote you directly here, society has mostly forgotten the value of poetry. I believe you're going into your fifth year now as chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts. Uh, to what degree is that statement still applicable? And then secondly, as chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, what initiatives have you taken to bring poetry back into the mainstream of American culture? Well, you know, I like to think, and this may be delusional self-flattery, that can poetry matter because it created a kind of international controversy in, uh, about what was the role of poetry in contemporary culture when it appeared, that that article helped, in a sense, uh, reinvigorate the role of poetry in public culture. And many people I know, you know did things because of having read that article. Uh, that being said, poetry is still largely marginal in our culture. It's not quite as bad as it was in 1991 when I published this. Uh, and one of the things that we're trying to do at the National Endowment for the Arts, as indeed uh, institutions like the Poetry Foundation of Chicago is trying to do, is to make the best of poetry accessible and available to millions of Americans. Now, we've done this in a number of ways. I mean, we have our Shakespeare in American Communities program in which we've helped fund 66 theater companies who have now toured 1,600 cities, bringing millions of people the chance to see productions of Shakespeare, especially uh, a whole generation of high school kids who are able to see it for free in these programs. And 70% of them have never seen a play before. So they're actually able to have a fantastic first-time encounter with the greatest, you know, poet in English, Shakespeare, mm -hmm. and which aids their study. We've also helped create, with the Poetry Foundation in Chicago, a national poetry recitation contest that we've had you know, somewhere between one and 200,000 high school students participate in this last year, where they memorize poems, and they compete first on a classroom level, a school level, a town level, a region level, a state level, and finally a national level, the chance to win scholarships. And it's created, you know, we've turned uh, poetry recitation into a competitive sport. And as you know, Americans like everything better if you do it at competition. Just look at American Idol. Uh, and so, you know, we've done these programs in, in, in addition to supporting hundreds of small presses, poetry festivals, and individual writers. So, you know, I think we're doing as much as anyone in the country is doing. Is it enough? No, but, you know, we'll keep giving it our best effort. Great. I'm going to ask you one more brief question here and then turn it over to my colleague, McCool. Thinking about your own personal experience over the last five years, what are the two or three maybe most distinctive capacities that have been required on your part to lead what amounts to America's premier public sponsor of the arts? Well, I'm both pleased and alarmed uh, to say that my job uh, in any given week requires pretty much every skill I've ever acquired in my life. Uh, and uh, But I think that's the nature of being a chief executive officer. You know, since you're helping shape the thing, you put yourself into it fully. But I think that the, th the thing that I learned from business, which most artists never learn, 
is the number one sort of quality that I'm happy to have in this job, which is an ability to create win-win partnerships with other agencies, with individuals, so that by doing a worthy project, everybody comes out ahead. Yeah. Uh, I also need creative judgment in this, you know, in this job because the, tr- the problem is not so much separating the good ideas from the bad ideas, which I know people have made an issue of in the past. It seems to me the real issue is how do you separate the superb ideas from the merely very good ones? And to, especially for our national initiatives, to create a few programs of, of the highest quality uh, that you can then you know, bring as broadly as possible. And then I think the third thing is just simply, once again, this is something I did not develop in the arts, but I developed in business, is skill and management. Just knowing how an idea happens, how it will fall apart, who, what stages is it in, who do you have to inspire, who do you, where do you have to check up on it. You know, and I'm a real believer in the, the, you know, the David Packard, Bill Hewlett system of management by walking around. And just you know, going, dropping into people's offices, uh, talking to them about it, where you become very visible, very involved, and people know that you really care about what they're doing. Good, terrific. At this point, let me turn the baton over to my good friend and colleague McCool. Uh, thank you very much, Mike. Uh, I, I wonder if uh, we could go back uh, to the collection uh, that you published. Yes. Uh, one of the uh, really fascinating essays in there was on business and poetry which you began uh, by quoting Wallace Stevens, uh, who was an insurance executive and also one of America's finest poets. Uh, Stevens wrote, money is a kind of poetry. What do you think he meant? Well, um, it's a metaphor and not an allegory, which means that I don't think he just meant one thing. You know, a metaphor radiates meanings. I think at least two of the things that he meant was that if you are in business, money has a kind of an imaginative power on you that's not really something denominated in dollars and cents. But also, if you think about money as a metaphor, money is the one thing in society that you can literally turn into almost anything else. You know, uh, And I think he was just t- took the idea of money, which we think of as purely utilitarian and dull, and endowed it with a certain amount of, of uh, poetic pizzazz. Why do you think uh, American poets exclude business from their poetry? The interesting thing, I think, is I, I would take your question one step further. Why do American poets who have worked in business exclude business from their poetry? Because you, you know, the yeah. conventional answer is they said, well, American poets don't know anything about business, and they think it's dull and boring, and so why should they write about it? And even if you accept that, but then why didn't Stevens write about it? Why didn't Eliot write about it? Why didn't Dickey write about it? Why didn't... Uh, McLeish write about it. And that's the much more interesting uh, question. And uh, that's what, one of the things I tried to answer in my essay. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it was because in, you know, th- those people felt that in order to separate their business lives from their imaginative lives, they literally, like Wallace Stevens, he had a, a briefcase that he opened up. He goes, this side is poetry, this side is insurance. You know, and you don't mix them. So it's male compartmentalization, perhaps. But also, uh, American poetry is has never really been very good in the 20th century about talking about public social issues. Even our political poetry, I think, is actually quite weak as a tradition versus many other nations. American poetry tends to be better about writing about private or domestic personal experience, 
or, you know, empty landscapes, you know, the imagination or private life, rather than the common life, the social life. And what is business, but in a sense, you know, one of the most uh, utilitarian forms of, of social interaction. Right. As you have correctly pointed out, uh, many poets have worked in business, and uh, there are also business people who write poetry. Uh, what does that tell us about the relationship between business and poetry? Well, um, you know, there's the old quote, the business of America is business. In America, I mean, overwhelmingly, the most talented people in our society go into business. Now, I know people in English departments don't like to believe that, but it's true. I mean, you meet people who are just f fantastically sharp, talented people, you know, in the business world, and they could have chosen any number of fields and succeeded in. A lot of them come into business with a another passion. It might be for music, it might be for uh, for literature, it might even be for sports. And sometimes very talented people can maintain those interests, uh, you know, throughout their lives. One of the interesting things about publishing business and poetry was that after I published it, you know, no, one had, no one had ever even noticed before this essay that there was a tradition of American businessmen who were poets. They always treated Wallace Stevens as this singular example, and I just showed there were dozens of people like this. But the funny thing is, after I published it, I began getting letters from dozens and dozens more. You know, I think I put a footnote in one of the later editions with about 30 names. I could give you another you know, 50 or 60 beyond that. And uh, I think what a lot of business people enjoyed about reading that, that essay is that they were not alone. They were not total weirdos. <laughs> uh, and so I think, but I think it really is a function that a lot of talented people go into business and they continue doing something else as well, be it playing the piano, you know, uh, collecting art, you know, or writing poetry. Right. The, uh, you know, uh, you, you've referred a couple of times to, to the fact that as you rise in business, uh, imagination and creativity become assets. Uh, extending that point further, uh, what do you think poets and entrepreneurs have in common? Are entrepreneurs poets, but just working with a different medium? Well, um, if you take poet in the old Greek sense of a maker, I mean, what entrepreneurs and artists have in common is that they imagine something that they then bring into reality. And as any poet or any composer or any entrepreneur knows, you imagine something, but to bring it to reality, you revise and recalibrate it a million times to get it just right. So, you know, I think that the ability of envisioning something and bringing it into being goes back to the ancient meaning of, of poetry, poesis, which means the made thing. This is Mike again. I'm going to ask you one final question. McCool may have uh, one final question because we're getting pretty close to the end of our half hour here. And, and, uh, and I'm going to read a little poem at the end, too, because I think if we're going to talk oh. about poetry, we should give some. Yes, oh, of course. A excellent. <laughs> I love it. Well, here's the uh, a question. We do have you as a featured speaker on June 7th at the Wharton Leadership Conference. The topic of this annual conference this year is on talent developing, developing people. And just by extension, if you could say a couple words about the extent to which you see the American public uh, becoming more developed in their ability to engage in and appreciate the arts, whether poetry, music, theater, or beyond. The arts have had an enormous expansion during the last 40, 50 years. 
Uh, and there are now opera companies, dance companies, theaters, and museums in virtually every large town in the United States. And so the the the, sh- the numbers of arts participation uh, the, of art, excuse me, the numbers of arts participants have gone way up. And so I think consequently the arts play a broader role in more Americans. It's not just people that live in Chicago and Philadelphia, New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco. It's now everywhere in the country. And I also believe that most Americans understand that if they want to have a thriving and healthy community, the arts have to be part of civic life. The, the definition of a town that a new business wants to relocate into, that people, that a, that a company that's trying to attract talented people will be looking for, is a community with with a, a really wide and deep selection of the arts. Good, good. Uh, yeah, I actually uh, will not ask a final question, but just I would love to hear your poem. Well, I just thought I would, read, I would read the shortest of you know of poems. It's only uh, six lines long. And it's called Unsaid. And it's about how much of the existence we lead is invisible to anyone but ourselves, because it's internal. Unsaid. So much of what we live goes on inside. The diaries of grief, the tongue-tied aches of unacknowledged love are no less real for having passed unsaid. What we conceal is always more than what we dare confide. Think of the letters that we write our dead. Wow. Wonderful. Beautiful. Wonderful. Good note to end on. Okay. Right. Thank you Keep very much. Bye bye. For more information, please visit our website at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Mm-hmm.